take your Bible and turn to James chapter 5. That's where we'll be. We're going to look at the first six verses in James chapter 5. And I have to admit, um, obviously, um, this text, as we read it, you're going to see why I'm going to say this, but, but this text gave me fits. This was a very difficult text to get my mind around, um, and a very difficult text, I think, just in general, in the book of James. And, and James saves sort of the best for laughs when it comes to really difficult stuff. So for the next three weeks, we're going to plow through James chapter 5. We're going to round out, we're going to finish up this book together, and we're going to, we're going to think about some, some things that maybe aren't as easy as... Uh, as some of the stuff that we've talked about earlier. And so far, as we've, as we, as we've looked at James, uh, we've seen some themes come forth, and, and those themes have been pretty straightforward. We've seen a lot of things spoken very cl clearly, very plainly to us um, in, in the book of James. Um, and, and some of those things include, but aren't limited to, sort of this, this understanding of trials, and what trials look like for the believer. What does it look like for the churches that James is writing to, to be enduring trials well? I mean, he writes to them and tells them that it looks like something like looking through the trials and understanding that they are temporary um, and not ongoing. They are light, that they are momentary, that they are not, they're not ultimate in, in, the, in the believer's world. But the eternity that is secured in Jesus is where um, we ought to fix our eyes. And then this understanding of wisdom sort of uh, is all throughout the, the book of James. This understanding of godly wisdom is, is what, we, what we seek. We seek godly wisdom in that we, we try and to see uh, what it is that, that God has prepared for us. And this economy that God has set up, um, which is really sort of this upside down world, right? This completely upside down world to the way that the world operates. So there's... Godly wisdom, and then there's worldly wisdom, and godly wisdom focuses on eternity and keeps the, the eyes fixed there, and uh, worldly wisdom focuses on the here and the now. Um, and then this morning, we're going to kind of touch on this theme a little bit, where James is speaking directly to the church, and here in James chapter 5, when we get when we get to read the text together, you'll see that he's actually sort of redirecting his this conversation away from the church and towards someone else, a different group of people all together. And I think that's really key for us. But, but this understanding that the poor, the downcast, the downtrodden, those who are sort of cast out by society are the one that the kingdom favors and the kingdom is, the kingdom is for uh, because... The things that the world offers doesn't cloud the vision of these people. So the people who are in a place where they're not, uh, where they're not doing well, maybe economically, uh, they have an advantage in the in the kingdom of heaven. And also, he wants to remind his readers in that that those people, those ones, are the ones that are a direct reflection of all of us in our spiritual state going into prior to knowing Christ. Where were we? We were spiritually downtrodden. We were spiritually outcast until Christ came into our lives and until Christ sought us and redeemed us and bought us with his precious blood. So this morning, as we look then at James chapter 5, let's read the first six verses together. I'm going to do my best to read these first six verses. Yeah, we, we, we've mentioned daylight savings time. Man, why do we have that? Okay, sorry. Here we go. James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are mocking. Your gold and silver have 
corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the Lord uh, and, uh, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Okay, so I think you can probably see why this text is one that I've that labored over a little bit and probably was sort of a bump in the road as we've kind of been plowing through James to, to sort of hit this rock. And, and to think about this is a little bit different than, than the way that we've been sort of processing James together so far. So the first thing that I just want to point out is that, uh, that this is a redirected conversation. James is not speaking to individuals in the church because the individuals in the church are the ones who are being oppressed. They are the ones who are who are the the uh, the laborers in the field that are that are being beaten down and uh, that are not getting paid a fair wage that their, their wages are held back by fraud. Um, they are the ones who are crying out against this 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 group of people who is uh, who is oppressing them. So at first, I think we glance at this text and we see a money text, right? We see we see a text about money. But overall, this is not first and foremost a text about finances. This is a text about oppression. It is a text about the misuse of wealth, the misuse of, of money. So as he redirects this conversation kind of away from his readers, it's, it serves as a warning to his readers, but then also a, 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 a warning to those who, who might be on the outside, who might be coming in, who might finally be, uh, be understanding and, and be looking for something in the truth of the gospel and, and walking into a, a church. So we, earlier in the book, we saw that, we saw that uh, James is very clear about showing partiality, right? He's very clear about what it means to be, he says, don't show any partiality. If someone comes in and he's wearing a gold ring, and he's wearing a gold ring, and he's wearing something that looks special. Don't, don't say, hey, come sit right here. Nobody would want to sit here anyways. But hey, come, come sit right here, and, and you, can, you, can, you have the best seat in the house, um, and, and, and so sit here. And then, and then for the other people, you're like, no, if, if you come in and your, your clothes are shabby, you sit in the back. Um, again, I think our culture probably reversed, right? Like, we like the back. The back is nice. Okay. So, um, so he says, don't show partiality. And these are the people that, that he says early in the book that are going to be in their midst at some point, and that they should not show partiality towards because they are the ones who are oppressing them. Uh, look back, I think I just laid my eyes on it. Look back at James chapter 2, if you flip back in your Bible, James chapter 2, um, verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. He's speaking to the church now. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones by the, the are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? So we see that this this is the oppressive group now that James is addressing in James chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. So you'll remember too our time together as we it's just been a while, but as we look back at James uh, early in the first chapter, we talked a little about who James was, right? And James is the half brother of Jesus. Um, and you remember that he later on, after he encountered the resurrected Jesus, actually believed who Jesus was. 
that, that he saw and, and understood, and then he became the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem later in his life. James was probably killed by Jewish leadership. He was probably killed by Jewish leadership um, for, uh, for opposing the economic abuses uh, that this Jewish leadership were committing. So this is right on par for James. If, if you knew James, he'd be, he'd be probably, there'd be smoke coming out of his ears all the time when it came to the abuse as it, as it pertained to wealth. Like, economic abuses would just get James going. You know that guy, right? The person in your world who gets really fired up about that one issue, like who gets really fired up about that, that one political issue or whatever. James would get really fired up about these economic abuses that were going on uh, in the, it, within the, the Jewish leadership. So this type of speech, again, as we look at two verses 1 through 6, this type of speech would have been commonplace for him. What he really wants to demonstrate to his readers is who they're not wealthy, they're not falling into this category, um, that, that the wealthy, or what the wealthy ascribe worth is ultimately worthless. And so just to think through our big idea then this morning, as, we, as we're processing this text, James wants his readers to understand that the world, what the world ascribes uh, worth, is worthless. James wants his readers to understand that what the world ascribes worth is worthless. So again, that we're flipping this, this understanding on its head. We see the world, we, we look at the world, and we say, the world says, this is important, this is important, this is important. And James says, no, none of those things are important. It's, in fact, it's the exact opposite. In fact, it's the exact opposite. It's always opposite day. Okay, why does he say this? Why does he say that the opposite is, is, is going on here? Uh, because it won't last. Because the people here on this earth, they're, the, the rich here, they're, they're putting their trust, their faith, their, their, uh, their energy into acquiring more gold and actually defrauding those because of that. Um, they, uh, they, they, uh, they can't, they, they, it, these are things that won't last. This is temporary, not eternal. Again, flipping this idea on its head. It won't last. This is kind of a, a passive argument. We, we see Paul even write in some place where he's talking about wealth. He says, you can't, you can't take it with you, so don't worry about accumulating it. Um, but that's not necessarily the deterrent for James Richards because they're not the ones with the money. They're the ones who are seeing it. Um, so what they're thinking and why James is spend so much time early in the book talking about partiality, they say, yeah, but if we favor the rich people, if we, if we put them in a good spot, if we save the good seat for them, those people who are persecuting us, then our lives will get easier. And in some way, yes, it would. In some way, if, if, you, make, if you make friends of wealth, yeah, your life is getting, probably going to get easier in some respects. This is it, though. They're, they're sort of playing with fire. And this is kind of a point that I want to make this morning. And this is the sidebar, right? Because, again, the text is, the text is primarily about oppression, not about money. But I think that we do need to think about money just for a second because it's going to help us sort of unpack the rest of this, this text. So the idea, then, in verses 1 through 6, money is not evil in and of itself, Right? I think we get that wrong. I think a lot of people say, like, well, the money is the root of evil. When, when in actuality, um, the, 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 Paul says that the, the, the love of money is the root of all evil. So, in fact, when looked at correctly, money is a, a wonderful gift. It's a wonderful thing that God has granted to us. God, think about it. God generously grants it to us in order to steward. 
He says, here, I'm going to give you a portion. I'm going to carve this spot out for you in my, in my kingdom, in my economy. I'm going to hand it to you and let you use it in ways that honor me. And so, uh, money is not an evil thing in and of itself, um, but what can be evil is when it is used improperly. So, uh, I heard this illustration multiple times, so I'm going to use it. It's, it's not original to me, but, but oftentimes fire is used, right? Fire is great. Like, not, not a pyro, but like fire is really good. Like, fire in the history of humankind is really important. It's really, it's something that's really essential, vital. Um, in our apartment, we have a fireplace, um, and we put fire in it regularly. It's a, it is the place for fire. So I think that's why we call it a fireplace, right? So we light a fire in it, but we're really careful with it, right? We have it cleaned, um, we monitor it close, we don't let the kids near it when it's burning. Um, fire in the fireplace is nice. It warms the space, it makes it feel alive. You feel good about having a fire in the fireplace. But if fire is not in its place, it becomes a problem, right? So fire in the middle of the living room is a problem. Fire, um, fire somewhere else in the house that's not the fireplace is probably an issue, right? This is the same way with money. This is the same way that James is sort of talking about, about money. If you keep it in a proper understanding that God has generously given you a portion to steward, and you can steward it and use it generously for his glory, you're keeping it in the fireplace, right? You're keeping that in the fireplace, but when you think, when you start to think about it incorrectly, when you think about it as your money, and that you're the reason you have it, and it, you use it for personal gain, if you worry about it constantly, if you steward it poorly, etc., it's, it's moved from the fireplace then to the middle of the living room, and it's, it's threatening to consume all that you have. So James is writing about these folks, these folks who have let the fire out of the fireplace, He's writing about them, and he's saying they've used every sleazy method available to gain money, right? Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields. These guys are mowing their lawn for them, which you kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters, you have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. I get that too, like, the now they're, what, what is crying out against them? It's the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields. It's not the laborers, it's actually the wages that are crying out against them. They've defrauded their employees. They've let the fire out of the fireplace, and they're actually relishing it. They're dancing in the flames. And James wants his readers to redirect this conversation away from, uh, away from this money and towards something different. You think that your life will be better, he's saying now to his reader, sort of indirectly, sort of secondarily. He's saying, you think that your life will be better if you have more money in your pocket. Or you make friends with people who already have lots of money in their pocket. Look at them. Look at what's coming for them, right? This is, this is not great. Ultimately, he's saying, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their corrosion will be evidence against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Um, our 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 two-year-old, he has he has some significant food sensitivities, 
Um, and, and so we've kind of like started about this new diamond. But earlier than that, earlier in his life, we talked to a bunch of allergists and a bunch of specialists to sort of figure out what was going on with him. And we were, we were thinking to ourselves, like, how is it that, okay, so anyway, that, we, we, we won't go there, but we really never got any sort of answers. One doctor said, well, he's allergic to this and this, and the other doctor said, it's not allergic, it's just a sensitivity. And, then, and so we're just like, what do we do? How do we, how we make sense of this? So like I said, this, this week we sort of changed his diet, and it seems, it seems to be helping, um, although it is a challenge for him, and, and there's been some crying when he can't have a graham cracker. But, but that, that's okay. That's neither here nor there. But there was a moment where Rebecca and I sort of just, it was even this week, just like looked at each other, wouldn't it be nice if we could just take him somewhere and just whatever, whatever, and just get answers, right? Just figure it out. Just, just have it figured out for us. Um, and if we had endless resources, we could, we could certainly make that happen. We could, we could certainly make that happen. It's sort of this trial and error thing. But this is what James is writing about to his readers. Um, are you going to put your hope in earthly stuff? Like the hope that we, the hope that we sort of find an answer for that problem can't be just, um, can't just be, oh, well, what we're going to do is take him to these allergists and specialists and, and figure out the, the or because we have endless resources. If we had endless resources, we might not get any additional answers. What James is writing about to his readers is just this. Are you going to place your hope in earthly stuff? Are you going to trust in your retirement account? Are you going to trust in the creator of the universe? Are you going to trust in the one who has promised to never leave you or forsake you? You're going to trust in the one who has promised to care for all of your needs. Um, and then you say to yourself, but my, but my needs are being met. And, and I would say, are you sure about that? Are, are you sure about that? God isn't a vending machine to make sure that you have a FICO score of 720. God isn't a vending machine to pump out a FICO score of 720 for you. Remember, we talked about this last week. God's work is not contingent on our perception of it. And this is really sort of even early in the book when we're talking about faith in particular. This is the heart of faith. What does it mean to have faith? It means that God gives us his promises in his word. And he tells us very specifically what he promises to us. And then he says, and then he says I'm 100% faithful to my promises always. Never at one moment am I unfaithful to my promises and so your understanding of how God's promises are being carried out is limited, right? We have this limited knowledge about how God is carrying out his promises. And this is the heart of faith that you must therefore trust that God is faithful to his promises even when you can't perceive it. Even when you don't see that it's happening. When God says, I will never leave you or forsake you or I'm going to care for all of your needs. When it seems that those things are opposite, when that's an opposite reality. Or when you feel as though it's opposite, it's not happening. We trust that God is faithful to his promises regardless. Therefore, it's vitally important to reflect on those promises regularly. Look at, look at verses 2 and 3 with me. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Jesus says like almost the exact same thing. And James being the, the half-brother of Jesus probably heard him say this around the dinner table or maybe he was present <coughs> at the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said this. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19-21, Do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth 
where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Jesus literally says not to do what James is writing that these people over here are doing. Like with strikingly similar language, right? It's, it's almost like verbatim what he says. And this makes sense, right? James just keeps driving these points home for us throughout the course of this book. And this, this, is, this one is really no different. Although it's a little bit difficult to get at first glance, it's, it's no different than what James has been writing to us throughout this whole book. If you say that you love Jesus, but you don't bridle your tongue, we talked about that earlier, if you slander your brother, if you allow your passions to dictate how you relate to other people in the church and outside the church, if you favor the rich, if you ignore the poor, if you grumble through trials, if you boast in your wealth, or if you defraud others, then you don't love Jesus. It's that simple. You love your passions, you love your, or your pleasures, you love your money. You love your false security. You love the immediate and not the eternal. And kind of, that seems like a harsh message coming out of this. Brothers and sisters, it's not. It's love. Like, this is the heart of love. This is what is going on. Let's, let's have some, let's just think about this. Let's think about this very clearly, real talk style. James might be talking to people outside of his readership, Right? But I think that for many of us this morning, this could be us. This could be who James is, is writing to. Um, in order to be a top 1% earner in the world, you need to make $32,400. Um, that's not exact science, but a bunch of numbers. It's kind of like right in the middle of those numbers that I found. Um, Making $32,400 puts you very high in the understanding of, 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 of um, the world economy. And that doesn't, doesn't seem like a lot of money. Maybe it does seem like a lot of money to you. That's not really the point. Uh, maybe, maybe you say, well, I make half of that. It's still a lot by global standards. It's still a lot by global standards. Um, but here's the point. We're consumed a lot with thinking about stuff and material and then acting on those, right? When I can get to here, when I can do this, when I, when I can get to a place where I can afford a new house, when I get to a place where I can afford a new car, when I get to a place where I can fly to that place and have that vacation. And this is not for us to judge others, but for us to evaluate our own hearts and our own minds. The question is, how are you living? This is a significant part of your day spent thinking about this new, home, this new house, this new boat, this new car, this vacation. And again, those, those things aren't bad, right? Those things in and of themselves are not bad. But it's where we take the fire and we move it away from out of the fireplace and we make these things primary. Because what happens then? They entice us to cut corners at work. They entice us to provide our employees with a little less than their work is worth. They entice us to hold back giving at church in order to get that number earlier, to take an out an ill-advised loan, or to ignore those who are hurting in the body because we can get to that, that house, that car, that boat, that vacation a little bit earlier. And this is a message for us all, not just those who make a certain amount of money per year. 
Um, and I think if we're honest, when we look at this, I think most of the time when we start to hear something like this, we say, yeah, that's not me. That's not me. And then we don't think about it. We just go our way and we don't think about it again. We don't process that again. Um, that's ultimately the problem. Because when James is describing in verse 5, you have lived on this earth in luxury and self-indulgence, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter, what he writes in verse 5 is probably you. In some respects, it's probably you, it's probably me. A fattened heart, one that doesn't let the truth of Scripture penetrate it, is, is one that doesn't know that there is an end coming. You see here that James is issuing this dramatic warning by speaking to this external group of people. Don't let these earthly things cloud your vision. Don't let these earthly, like these rich people over here who are oppressing you, don't let these earthly things cloud your vision. The more you pursue money and material here on earth, the more you seek security and safety here on earth, the more you desire the comforts of, comforts of this world, the less you will see clearly the eternity and actual wealth, safety, comfort that can only be offered there. Really, we're learning a new language here, and this is kind of like a second point. We're learning a new language here. We're talking about this, this world, this, this understanding of following Jesus and how it flips our world on its head and flips it upside down. We're learning a new language. The world speaks this certain language. It, it talks about material so much, but it rarely thinks about eternity. Have you ever thought about, okay, so side note, have you ever thought about how silly this setting is? Have you ever thought about how silly corporate worship looks to the world? Like, if you had no categories, we get together, we sing some songs, we read from a 2,000-year-old and more old book, and then a guy gets up and gives, like, this TED Talk-like thing, but is yelling more than TED Talk speakers. That seems weird. It really seems weird. And, and maybe... Maybe we shove some people under the water, and maybe we drink some grape juice and eat a wafer. Seriously, that seems so strange. But we're here on Sunday morning, we're here together as a people, because we're learning a new language. The problem is we show up here, and maybe we haven't spoken this language all week. Um, because the world we are immersed in is speaking a different one. It is speaking a language that is, and speaking a language that is completely 180 degrees rotated from the language that Scripture is speaking. And when we come together on Sunday morning and we start to sing, you have to remember this language. It takes you a bit, or it's a lot of work, so you just stand there and watch, or maybe check out, maybe you're looking at your phone, whatever it is that you're doing. So the language is a language of gospel of eternity. That's what we're, that's what we're trying to learn here. It's set against this language of temporary and earthly. And I'm not talking about speaking, how we speak. And I'm saying language, but speaking as much as we're oriented. Like, how is our world oriented throughout the course of the week? When you learn a new language, you're learning all these things. And over time, you start to think, you start to process in these languages, right? You, don't, you no longer think in that, that language maybe that you originally learned or, or knew. Even if you're a second learner of it, you start to think of it and you start to dream in that language, it, it's totally immersive. Like, it becomes an immersive experience. That's the way that you learn a language. You immerse yourself in it. So, world says, I need a new car. Believer says, my treasure is in heaven. 
And, and maybe when we think about that, you're just like, yeah, I do need a new car, though. And our eyes roll back in our head a little bit. But this language that we need to speak, this is the language that we need to learn together. If you go to high school Spanish class, and you sit down in Spanish class, and you learn from the, you hear the teacher lecture, and then you walk out from Spanish class, and don't think about Spanish until the next, whatever class is, twice a week or three times a week, you're never going to learn Spanish. You're never going to learn it. So, the, so the, the application is clear. You walk here at somebody, you walk out of here and never think about these things again if you never think about the fact that the world is looking at how I ought to look at things completely differently at 180 degrees. If you cut yourself off from other believers, if you ignore your Bible all week, if you spend time your week thinking about getting stuff and securing more comfort here on earth, then you're never going to get to learn this language. The best way to learn the language is to immerse yourself in the culture. Immerse yourself in the word. Immerse yourself in situations where people can speak the truth of the gospel into your situations, where you feel drawn, when you feel drawn to think about the temporary, think about the eternal instead. And these are muscles that we're not working out regularly, right? They're flabby, they're unused. Um, I just, I'm mixing metaphors like crazy here. We're, we've been undisciplined. We're, okay, we're going to the gym, but we're always skipping leg day, right? We're always skipping leg day. Just like, look at my, look at my glute, or my, whatever these are. <laughs> Traps. Or whatever. Shoot. Yeah. Guess I gotta go to the gym. I'm gonna cut that out. But we're, okay. Get back on track. Okay, here we go. We're always keeping leg day. And this is, we're called to discipline ourselves in this language. Okay, so, wow. All right. So, concluding thoughts. And let's, let's think about this together just for a few minutes. And I think, I think part of this, too, is when we come to this, when we look at verses 1 through 6, right? And we're seeing this. We're seeing this redirected conversation. We're seeing all of these things. We, we think to ourselves, okay, this world that we're living in is saying something completely different. Right? It's something that's completely different. What they're saying, I'm accumulating things for myself here on earth. They're not thinking that it's going to be used as evidence against them. And I think oftentimes we come to church and we think, well, that's someone else's job. Right? This is someone else's job to learn this language and know this language. It's the Spanish teacher's job to know Spanish. And it's not mine. Getting a grade, I'm getting a. I'm gonna come here. I'm gonna just do what I need to do in order to get an A in this class or a B in this class or just pass it and move on. You guys are still laughing about that. <laughs> okay. What we need to understand is that we're all ministers of the gospel. We've all been called to be ambassadors. That is part of our identity as those who are in Christ is to be ambassadors, to be ministers of reconciliation. Paul writes that very clearly in 2 Corinthians. We need to be able to redirect one another from the temporary to the eternal. We need to be able to redirect each other from the worthless to that which has worth. So in conclusion, then, as we've been thinking about this, just three thoughts, then. Three things this morning. And we'll, we'll talk about these within the, the context of these metaphors, right? We're going to keep the fire in the fireplace. James really wants his readers 
to see that wealth held in the wrong regard is dangerous. Those who were persecuting James's readers had let the fire out of the fireplace and made money their god. They had made material their god. And they found their security comfort in temporary wealth. James is warning against this thinking. So he's using this rhetorical device. He's saying, you people over there, this is your situation. This is not the church's situation. This is your situation. But um, you need to know, church, that this is what's coming for those who, who have taken the fire out of the fireplace and put it in the middle of the room. So the call in for us this morning is to evaluate what you're working towards in your world. Evaluate what you're working towards in your world. Is it earthly wealth? Is it earthly success? Is it earthly security? Is it earthly comfort? Or is it knowing God, loving Him, and loving others, the things that, 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 that Jesus says sum up what the Christian life is? So first then, keep the fire in the fireplace. Secondly, learn the language. Again, in an immersive experience, you cannot cut yourself off from the local church be here once a week and expect to learn the language. The church is the place where we immerse ourselves, right? Cultural immersion is the primary way that you learn a language. And here's the thing. Among the people that you spend time with up through the course of the week, what do you have in common with them? Think about it. Ask that question. What do you have in common with the people that you spend time with throughout the course of the week? <clears throat> I think this is a test. Is it that you like the same earthly stuff? Is it like you like the same worldly stuff? Or is it because they push you to speak, the go speak gospel language? I suspect for most of us it's the former. I suspect it's most of us it's the former. We rally around things that we like that are earthly, that are worldly. Um, and very rarely, I think the gospel though, since it is for all people and for all places in all times, it transcends that. And people that we might not necessarily have in something in common with. Something that we might not necessarily here on earth. Something that we might not necessarily because of because of uh, age gaps, because of class, because of whatever it might be. Um, all of a sudden, we have something incredibly in common with those people. And when we look at the gospel and we see that it is the truth that has redeemed us, that has saved us, that has changed us, that has transformed us. And when we look together at how we then circle around, rallying around different things. Uh, we see that those things quickly fade in our minds. <coughs> you see, we, we strive, okay, so we've talked about community a lot. We've talked, you're like, oh gosh, here we go. We're going to talk about it again. We stress community, but we don't do it for community's sake. You see, we can, we can run in whatever circles we want to run, right? I think a lot of us do that. I think we're like, well, I have community. Um, I do this together. I'm a biker, I'm a photographer, I'm a book reader, I'm a truck lover, I'm a cat lover, whatever it is that you are, the sports team enthusiast, whatever you want to rally around. But the reason we focus on community here is because we, what we realize is that we need a place to work out these muscles that in a lot of ways have atrophied in our world. We need a place to immerse ourselves in order to start speaking the language of the truth of the gospel. We realize that the immersion is the best way to do that. We know that the local church is God's chosen way to bring about His purposes here on earth. Not quilting club, not mountain biking club, not your boat club. 
that city council, the New Testament, ultimately has no category for a believer who's detached from the local church. And this is, this is what is fleshing out in this, right? This is why this text is here. This text is pointing to the people to say, you have something far greater than what's given to these people. These people are using these things incorrectly, and you're looking at them, and you might be tempted to show them partiality. Don't do it. You have something far greater in common than... Than, uh, than an easy, comfortable, secure life here on earth. Paul says in the church in Corinth that they're all one body. And we have many gifts. If we are all one body, the manifestation, if God's manifestation of the church here in this local area um, is one body, we all have many gifts. You might, be, you might be a kneecap or you might be a finger. You might be a kneecap or you might be a finger. When your kneecap itches, your fingers come in handy. Uh, your kneecap has... Because it sends this signal to your brain, it goes to your head, and it says, hey, scratch that itch, fingers. And the brain says to your fingers, scratch the itch, the fingers uh, scratch the itch, and then you're good. Fingers execute, perfect, done. So two things to consider then, thinking about what Paul writes there. If you detach yourself from the local church, whether you're the kneecap or the fingers, the itch won't get scratched and it will stay itchy. This is the plain English version. If you detach yourself from the local church, you will wonder why God isn't working in your life because he intends to use the local church as the primary way to work in your life. If you don't know the language, this is a second, if you don't know the language, you, as the kneecap, will be able to know, be able to ask how to, uh, or be able to ask to be scratched, and you, as the fingers, will be able to interpret the message to scratch the kneecap. If you have a need, but you can't express that need, or you can't help, but you don't understand what need is being expressed, the need will never be met. And again, this is why community is important. It's not important because we say it's important. It's not important because we just need people around us just to be there. Gosh, we don't need that. What we need is to be fulfilling what God is commanding to us in the pages of Scripture to love one another, to do, do that whole host of one another's together as His people. Not because we have something earthly or worldly here in common, like we come together on a Sunday morning, but because we have uh, the gospel in common, because the gospel has impacted us in a dramatic way. So the second one, learn the language. Finally, find your treasure. Find your treasure. Very simply, looking at this text, there's a lot of treasure talk, right? Stop looking for earthly stuff. Stop looking for earthly stuff. Know that your treasure is in heaven, like Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 21. Know that your treasure is there. Know that your reward is there. That treasure isn't stuff that you put off here and will get there. Your treasure is Christ. That relationship that was broken with God because of sin has been restored through Him, and you get Him. He lived. He died. He rose again. He ascended into heaven on your behalf. So stop looking for fulfillment here. Stop looking for fulfillment here on this earth. Start finding it in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. There's a greater fulfillment than any fulfillment that you can find here on earth coming. Any fulfillment here is just a shadow of the greatest treasure that the world has ever known. We'll finish with this. This is Matthew chapter 13, verses 
or verse 44, simply. Jesus speaking to his disciples, telling them about what the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden a field, which a man found and covered up. That is his, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. And in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has 